Welcome to the First Intuition Student Forum and Podcast. In this episode, myself and Dave are joined by fellow tutor Alex Griffiths. We talk about business valuation techniques and we look at the case study of Manchester United as a business that is currently up for sale and requiring an agreement between a buyer and seller as to its value. We recorded the session in front of a live Zoom audience and if you'd like to join us for a future one, you can register for them. We've put a link in our show notes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the First Intuition Student Forum podcast. My name is Ben Bullman, and I am joined again this evening by my good friend and colleague, David Malthouse. Good evening, Dave. Evening, Ben. How are you this week? I'm really, really good. Thank you. One of our tutors was off sick this week, which meant I had to go in and cover. If you're listening to this, John, hopefully you're feeling better. Um, but myself and Alex, who's going to be joining us as the guest this evening, we've done a bit of covering this week, but a bit of different covering for us. So John, who was off, normally teaches our impact skills program. So instead of teaching direct accounting, we've been doing some more skills workshops. Um, I did one on leadership and management on Tuesday, yesterday, as we're recording this. Alex, you've done one on communication today and I've had a great time. They're slightly different. So this is not training people for exams. This is broader than that, training people for life skills. So my class were leading each other to make some models out of Lego. They were researching different leadership styles and different famous leaders to present back with some thoughts as to why they were successful and what challenges they'd overcome. So I'm having a fantastic week, Dave. How's your week going down? Um, good. I had a, a, a bit of a surprise um on monday which uh, actually the story starts at the end of least last week ben I, I was merrily working away answering student queries and suddenly my phone rings with an unknown number uh, answer said unknown number and there's someone that i i know from our chamber of commerce who, who says um david there's a, a vip coming to chelmsford next week and um we wanted to know if you were available on monday to an event with this vip uh, I said, do you know who the VIP is? And they said, no, we don't know. We've just been told that they're coming. And, um, you know, we, we've looked at your profile. And we think you might be suitable to, to attend, but we need to run your name past the police to make sure that it's okay for you to go. And I, I said, I was intrigued. So I said, yeah, that, that's absolutely fine. Um, and then on Saturday, they sent me a message to say, you've been approved and um, you'll find out the venue tomorrow. So I, I'm thinking this is a bit like some kind of illegal rave where I'm not going to be told where it is until the night of the night of the actual event. So Sunday comes and I'm told I've got to go to Chelmsford Boys and Girls Club, which as, as everyone that lives in Chelmsford knows, that's our, that's our boxing club. I thought, well, what's going to happen there? And I'm told that I'm going to be meeting a senior cabinet member then. So I, I was... I was not allowed to broadcast this and tell people that I was going. It said, this cannot be shared. I can't tell people. I did share it with, the, you know, the people that lived in my house. And we went through who who is a senior cabinet member. And in, about around the house, we were all taking bets on who it was going to be. There were people saying that it's going to be Michael Gove. Um, someone said, oh, it's going to be, you know, someone who is quite low down in the pecking order, a very junior member. That's what my, my son thought. Um, Still knew nothing of it. So Monday morning arrives and I roll up to the um, to the Chelmsford Boys and Girls Club. Have to go through full security. So I have to, you know, bag searched, metal detectors, people checking ID, 
had to do all of that before I came in. I got into the main room and um, I, I saw a lady there that I recognised and it was our local MP, Vicky Ford. And I've met her a few times before, but she was running around like kind of, I, I think of it like, like the, the, the mother of the bride at a wedding. Okay, just checking, that every, getting really stressed, checking that everyone's the right place, still don't know who it is. Get ushered through into the main room. Sony's the prime minister then. Rishi. I was going to say, Sunak. it will either be somebody that has been or is currently the chancellor, if they've headhunted you for finance, mm -hmm. or someone senior in education. And so Rishi was the chancellor, but you have met the the, the, the top minister in our aisle. Fantastic. Did you speak to him? He was there to he was there to launch their, the um, the government's antisocial behaviour. Um, piece of uh, piece of work project that they've got going. Um, I didn't get to have a fa face to face one to one conversation with him. He came in, gave his speech, answered some questions from the audience. I was not selected as one of the people to um, to, to actually ask him a question. Um, but he was yeah. He, he came in, did his thing. Um, the 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 invited guests asked questions first, and then the the good people of the press got their chance to ask questions afterwards um, and then I was found out afterwards that I was featured or uh, well not featured but I was shown on the six o'clock news on um on Monday night so um some of my friends took screenshots and then sent them to me so that was my my brush with the the great and the powerful on Monday so I, I, I mean you know did you do anything similar Ben? No, sadly, sadly, I wasn't invited to um, an audience with the PM this week. Maybe next week. I'll tell you what it does show, though, Dave, the power of networking. We've talked a lot about this, haven't we, on the podcast, and we've, we've done particular episodes on it. But the fact that the Chamber of Commerce, you said, yeah. kind of invited you, presumably because you've been to other events that they've done and you are on LinkedIn, and so they, they found you out. It's, it, I think the fact that they knew me, and I think also one of the things, because they were looking at antisocial behaviour, on the one hand, they had people, residents that were very active in kind of residence associations, so had witnessed antisocial behaviour. But the, the other thing they were looking at is kind of prevention. And they had lots of people from things like sports organisations. So, you know, I, I spent some time talking to the chairman of Chelmsford City and people that ran organisations like that. And then I was there from an education perspective. Because one of the things that you know we, we did talk about before um, the, the prime minister arrived was the, you know, the, the for me the, the the way to tackle antisocial behaviour is not through fines and prison and you know really strict rules. It's about preventing people from getting into those positions, particularly young people. And you know one of the ways of doing that is through is through things like sports and activities like that. Another one is through great education. And one that I believe in is by giving people meaningful work to do. And that's what you know, apprenticeships can do right the way across all areas of different types of work. So I think that's probably where I got the invitation from, because I'm, I'm certainly not you know, a resident that's witnessed a huge amount of antisocial behaviour. Um, and I, I like to think I'm not the kind of person that is there where my job is to punish people for antisocial behaviour. Brilliant and nice to be recognised in, in our field of education, as you say, and sport, something that we're both very passionate about. And I know you invest quite a bit of time in, in coaching. Mm -hmm. Before we get on to our topic tonight and guests, I just wanted to flag, obviously, podcast listeners, you won't be able to see this. 
But Dave is sitting and he has got the sun or bright light, at least, streaming through a skylight, I presume, in the, the ceiling there. And we talked about this last week. I promised people this week's podcast would be so much brighter because we've changed the clocks. And so we've gained an hour of daylight since we recorded last week's podcast. I'm looking out of my window this evening and it is chucking it down. It's grey. It's horrible. Um, and I've still got my lamp on. But Dave, it looks like you've got some some sunnier weather there. I, th I think it's just a bright skylight, to be honest. We haven't got, um, there are some very dark clouds on the horizon, but you're right, it is much, much nicer to be sitting here where there's still natural light coming through the windows rather than, yeah, my, my main light being switched on. And, and let's hope, having listened to last week's podcast, some people got out and experienced some outside environment stuff. If you have, feel free. You can always um, send us an email, send us an update. Go onto social media, find the First Intuition Facebook page or Instagram page and, and send us an update of what you've been doing. But we will talk about tonight's topic of conversation. And we've got a guest, a returning guest. Alex, when you come back, we officially call you a friend of the First Intuition Student Forum podcast. <laughs> Welcome back, Alex Griffiths. Oh, thank you very much, Dave and Ben, for having me. No problem. So if you, if you know Alex, if you've been to classes well across East Anglia, really, because you're you're pretty prolific getting out there and, and doing your teaching thing across the whole of the region. But if you've been in class with Alex, you'll know he's a really, really great tutor, a really, really great guy. You've been on the podcast before, Al. Um, so go back and listen to the previous episode where we had Alex on um, talking about study related stuff. But tonight, Al, we've got you as our expert on business valuations. So I've dabbled in financial management, but Dave and Alex have both taught it now for many, many years. Um, before we get on to thinking about a scenario, and we're going to be talking this evening about how to value Manchester United, but more about that in a moment. Um, maybe Dave first. What, what's your experience of seeing valuation come up either in the real world or in exam world? In the, in the real world, it, it comes up absolutely loads. Um, so, for, number one, from the point of view of anyone that is any kind of investor, anyone that's got a pension fund, anyone that decides that they want to dabble themselves in the stock market, you will all have to have an awareness of how businesses are valued and how shares are valued. So we see those all the time. We see these big FTSE 100 companies and we see valuation there. But also when I was you know, working you know, as a practicing accountant, I saw business valuations where someone was trying to buy someone else's business or someone was trying to sell their business to someone else. Um, I saw valuations where businesses were passed from one person in the family to another person in the family. So it might be that parents had set up a business and they wanted to pass it on to their children. And for tax purposes, that business has to have a valuation. You have to come up with a value of that business to understand how it will be taxed when it's passed down the family tree. I also saw valuations when businesses are incorporated. So if I set up a business and I'm running it as a sole trader, I might want to convert that into a limited company at some point. And to make sure that that's done correctly, that has to be valued correctly. So the correct valuation is put as the starting point within a limited company. So whenever any of those things happen, we have to be able to value a business. And that, that valuation you know, has to... You know, meet a number of people's different needs which is really where we come to when we start looking at valuations later on but I know Alex has, has taught far more of these things than I have so Alex can probably tell you a lot more about where they fit in the different exams and syllabus. 
so yeah, they feel uh, fit in all the time in cross, um, across ICAW papers. Uh, they're increasingly becoming much more kind of business aware in some of the like, kind of endpoint assessments here at AAT, um, as you're having to do a lot more kind of investment appraisal, which is kind of the starting point for how you would value businesses. So it's coming in absolutely everywhere. And it's, yeah, as you said, it's not just in kind of real world if you're an accountant, but you see it happen in lots of different kind of films, TV series, and you see the techniques that we'll be referring to tonight. I remember I was watching one, it was, what was it, Suits, about three or four years ago, and they started talking about some of the methods that we've got tonight. And um, it's quite quite nice to actually see it, okay, because you learn so much technically, but to see it used in kind of pop culture is okay, always quite interesting. Yeah, I, I think from my perspective, it is it is quite exciting or interesting. It's something that's a bit different. I was at a, a school event a couple of weeks ago, got invited to go into the Lee School, which Dave, you'll know the Lee School in Cambridge. And they were running an open evening, inviting lots of other schools to come in and experience some accounting and finance. And one of the firms that we trained for had sent some of their team down there. And one of the exercises was valuing a business. And it was really interesting seeing these 16 to 18 year old um, A-level students thinking about how they would go about doing it. So something we can hopefully explore the different methods and mechanisms to come up with a value tonight. I think the second thing from my perspective, when it comes up in the exam, it tends to be quite a, a blank canvas style question, doesn't it? It very much is, here's lots of information about the scenario. Can you now suggest suitable methods and conclude on a potential value for the business? And I've seen that really scare students because those open ended questions are quite hard. Oh, my goodness, there's so much here. Where do I start? How do I structure this? In an average exam question, I guess, Alex, we could be looking at anywhere up to maybe 15 to 20 marks for doing the valuation and talking through it. Yeah, and I think that's always uh, really important to stress to students when we teach them. It's usually just as many marks about discussing Know, the various methods and their pros and cons and suitability in that scenario as there are for actually doing the calculations because some of them are as you'll see quite straightforward and simplistic but others which are yeah a little bit more complicated do require a bit more work um, and are a bit more subjective but it's then the discussion about those methods okay which is just as vital cool so so tonight we're recording this in the end of march 2023 must appreciate podcast listeners might be listening to this way into the future but it's it's on the the mainstream news agenda at the moment that the football club Manchester United is actively been announced they're up for sale their existing owners have said we are interested in potentially selling the business and it is structured as a company and as far as I can see two or three different groups of people are now vying to put in offers and bids to try and acquire the ownership of the, the company and the football club and everything that goes along with it. So I thought it would be quite interesting to talk about that as a, a case study, as an example, because whether it's business valuations or some of the other more complex areas of finance that we teach, I always think it makes much more sense if we can bring it back to something that people can understand in the wider world that we live in. So hopefully people understand the concepts of a football club and can start visualising some of the things that we're going to talk through this evening. Before we get on to the techniques, 
I certainly have always encouraged students to do a bit of an opening introduction. As you said, Alex, there are marks available in these questions for your ability to communicate what you're doing, as well as just crunching the numbers behind the value. And so in an introduction, I would normally maybe set the, the scene and the context a bit. So Alex, I don't know if you could start us off there with regards to what impact do you think having a seller that is maybe not going to sell and at least three potential parties trying to buy the company might have on the value that we would be assigning to it? Well, of course, if it's a seller who doesn't really need to sell as well, as well as want to, um, the price that they're going to be asking for is naturally, of course, going to be higher. Um, because otherwise, why would they? Unless they needed the money for something else. Um, the other thing as well, in terms of if they're going to sell, is really, are they looking to sell the majority of their shares or is it just the minority? Um, the thing that we've seen with Man U that's come out in the news in the last few days has been, well, actually, are they looking to actually sell all the shares? Um, and it might just be a minority investor that okay, could be looking to uh, okay, put in some funds. But if it's a majority and they want that kind of control, it might be a much uh, okay, higher price to have that degree of influence. The more people who are buying, the higher the price will be as well, because they'll be competing. So an, an, an element of negotiation, you talked there about buying the controlling stake. Mm -hmm. Dave, maybe if I come to you now, maybe we could just break that down a bit more and explain that to people. Why would it cost more to buy a controlling stake in a business than it would just a, a minority interest share? Usually, if you just want to buy a few shares of a company, uh, and the, probably with the exception of, um, of unlisted companies, it's pretty easy to pick up a few shares. So, Ben, if, if you wanted to buy some shares in Tesco, um, uh, right now the markets are closed, but tomorrow morning markets open at eight o'clock and you could become a Tesco shareholder and you could buy 10 shares in Tesco's in a heartbeat and it wouldn't take any time at all. But if you want to buy more than 50%, enough to have control of Tesco, there aren't more than 50% of Tesco shares actually available for sale right now because most shareholders have bought the shares because they like that company and they want to hold on to those shares for a long period of time. So if you want to get prize those shares away from them enough to get control, you're going to have to pay more than the current market value. And the more shares you want, the higher the price is because you've got to prize those shares away from the biggest holdouts that are holding on for you know more and more and more money. So it, it just it's just a but by virtue of the fact that things become more scarce, the more of them you want. Um, there are certain benefits to having control. So if you own over 50% of the shares in the company, then you, you can you can pretty much make most decisions at board level. You can pretty much instruct the board to do whatever you want. If you own more than 75%, you've pretty much got every bit of power there is going. There's very, very little that you can do that you can't do if you own more than 75% of votes in the company. So there are big benefits to the shareholders of having them, but there's always that premium to try and get control. Perfect, excellent. And as I understand it, the control of Manchester United is not just one person. I'm right in thinking that the shares are owned by a family and they've each yeah. individually got a significant percentage, but not one person owns enough to control the company as one person. So I suppose that throws another dynamic into the mix of agreeing a deal. Those selling shareholders have got to agree if they're going to sell en masse, presumably. 
Uh, yeah, they, they, they would have to be, if, if they wanted to take control, there would have to be some kind of agreement to buy enough shares. Um, they have to make an offer to all shareholders. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be accepted by all shareholders, but they would need to make an offer to all shares. They have to be prepared to pay the money for all the shares if all shareholders did agree. Man United is even more complicated because they've got different classes of share. Um, and they've got shares that are publicly listed. Those shares hold fewer votes than the shares that are not publicly listed. So it's the Glazer family and some of their associates that own, I think they own the B shares. The, each B share, I think, has got 10 more votes than the A shares, and the A shares are the ones that are publicly listed. So even if you did buy all the shares that are actually freely available on the market, then you wouldn't have that many votes because it's these special shares that carry all the votes at, at, at um, AGMs and things like that. Fabulous. So I think to sum that up, it will require agreement. It yeah. needs to, the seller and the buyer to both agree on a price, a bit like negotiation and haggling over a car when we get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. But that doesn't stop us using some of the techniques that we teach students mm -hmm. on ways that you could come up with a ballpark figure for an offer and what would hopefully be an acceptable level of yeah. valuation on the business. So and Alex, the, maybe, no, sorry, go on Dave. I was just saying that we, we've got an indication of, of what we believe is an amount of money that would enable the sale to happen. So, you know, rumour has it, uh, and Alex, you might, you might have more up-to-date knowledge than I do, but rumour has it, $7 billion should do the trick. That if someone came along with $7 billion and said, I want to buy Man United, the current owners are prepared to relinquish their shares at that particular valuation. Um, I don't know if that's, that's still true, Alex. I know there's a few more people in the mix to buy now than there were a week ago. Yeah, $7 billion will get you pretty much the club now, I think is pretty much been uh, okay, emphasised because they were initially kind of looked bits of, it was what they thought, I think, was 4 to $5 billion. Mm -hmm. based on what other clubs have gone for previously like, like Chelsea but so we've, we've got a bit of a range there um, between, between I don't four think to even, seven yeah and I think it will be now seven is about it's about it cool so, so that gives us a range and a bit of a ballpark figure to work to if we were now looking to add some science behind it science of the numbers where would you usually suggest the student starts? I, I've heard lots of people saying the one I would start with is an asset-based valuation. Maybe we'll go there first, Alex. So, yeah, absolutely. It's just a case of here taking all of the company's current uh, okay, assets, deducting all of those liabilities as well to kind of leave okay, yourself with that kind of equity value. And it's usually quite, yeah, quite a good place. It's like, a, yeah, as you said, a starting point. It's not overly complicated, quite straightforward and easy and kind of whittle down maybe the people who could maybe even suggest or consider making a bit but it has to be said quite easy and i've done a, a you know i've looked you know when you think about man united man united is quite a straightforward simple business you know mm -hmm. it doesn't have many assets it's got a um a stadium that's seen better days it's got a load of training grounds that have seen better days and a squad that's seen better days you know, it's, it, in terms of what it actually owns, um, it has got loads and loads of liabilities. And, it, and if, you know, if, if we look at what Man United's accounts currently look, or, or last financial statements look like, it did show assets of 1.3 billion, okay, which, which is quite nice. But as you said, Alex, you've got to take off the liabilities 
And when you take off liabilities, the net asset value of Man United is £128 million. So £128 million is quite a long way from £7 billion. And, and I think that actually culminates more in the fact that I've read anyone buying it is going to have to then fund quite a significant renovation of those grounds. They're quite dilapidated. So if we valued it at the asset value, then there's also the fact that the new owners are presumably going to need to finance more money to kind of regenerate the ground and maybe even move the ground location. So an asset valuation seems incredibly, incredibly low for the expectation from the people selling the club at the moment. Exactly. Yeah. They're wanting 60 times asset valuation. And there is kind of David said here, when you're looking at the liabilities, there's the argument, actually, you should include and add on the value of the liabilities, like the debt in, the, in Manchester United to the asset base, uh, to the um, assets that they have, purely because you're going to have to fund that debt as well if you if you take them over. So a lot of people do a little bit like if you buy a house you don't just buy like value the house based on what someone's equity is in that house you value the house based on okay what it's actually worth on the market based on how much someone's got left of their mortgage and the equity because that's what they're actually taking over they're not just taking over someone else's equity they're taking over the debt and the equity at the mm. same point mm. so and in 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 an exam question, I would always say that the asset value is going to be the lowest one. Usually there's always exceptions to the rule on that, because I think the presumption is that would be very much the valuation if we were going to break this company up. If we weren't going to continue it as a trading going concern, we were actually going to just try and get money back for selling off the ground, selling the players, presumably to another club, settling the debt. And that would be very much a kind of almost like a liquidation value, I guess. Yeah, in FM and some of the papers I teach, they just call that asset stripping. So you buy the business, not to trade with it, but just to sell off its individual parts. And, and you know, we could use that valuation, Ben, if we, if we said, right, I want to create my own Man United. And so if, if we went, I mean, I mean, and, you know, we went to, as I say, let's say we went to Ely, just north of Cambridge and said, right, but I know there's there is an Ely football club, but we want to set up our own Man United. So, you know, if we wanted to build, you know, an old Trafford Stadium just outside Ely and we wanted to then sign the players that Man United have got based on the price of the Man United paid for them. And we did all of that. And we did it with a load of debt that we take on. That would the total value of that would be what 128 million pounds. Okay, but if we did that and we set up this Man United team that sits there in Ely, um, are we going to fill that out with fans? No. Now, and if we set it up tomorrow, what league are we going to be in? Oh, at, at best, we would be in some Eastern Counties League, I would imagine. And we would have this massive stadium in the Eastern Counties League with four people from Ely going down there to watch it. You know, and, and we wouldn't have the rich heritage of Man United. We wouldn't have the Champions League um, trophies. We wouldn't have the Premier League trophies, the old Division One trophies, the FA Cup trophies. We wouldn't have that history around it. We wouldn't have the fan base that goes down back generations. We wouldn't have the global recognition. All of that stuff we can't buy. All of that stuff is things that Man United have got that we would have to generate ourselves. And that's part of the reason why that 128, that £128 million isn't a true valuation of the club, because it doesn't include all that other stuff. 
okay, which does have value. Being in the you know being in the Champions League, being in the Premier League, that has value, and that's not on a balance sheet. You know, you don't have a balance sheet item that says you know found a member of the football league. You know, you don't have it saying you know won the FA Cup however many times they've won it. So yeah, we, we've had an observation from a student in the chat box talking about that very concept, goodwill. And we can broaden that out into other intangible assets because the, the logo and the brand image of Manchester United is clearly worth a lot of money. But you can only recognise that when you buy it from somebody else. So to talk in financial reporting terms, something I more teach, um, we couldn't put that into the balance sheet of Manu unless we actually bought it from somebody else. If we go and buy that from another business, we can then capitalise it in our balance sheet. So let's let's move the conversation on. We've kind of talked through the assets. What would be the next way that we would look to value the business, Alex? Um, common one that you'll see is based on, it, based on its um, earnings. So like the future profits and okay, that it's going to be likely to make in the future. So normally we would take like a price earnings ratio or an earnings multiplier and times that then by um, the company's future profits that they are likely to make. Or sometimes they use like EBITDA, like earnings before interest tax, depreciation, amortization. Um, the main problem with that is that a lot of football clubs and pretty much all football clubs don't make a profit. So if you were going to use this, you would end up with like a negative value for uh, the company and Manchester United, which probably wouldn't work overly well. Um, what is more common, therefore, so on a similar note, is that you would take that multiplier that we said, but you would times it by their revenue is the common thing that happens in a lot of football clubs, because at least all football clubs will be making revenue. And it's quite a comparable method, therefore, to be valuing and comparing one valuation of one team against that of another, because that will start to maybe potentially start to bring in the effects of the brand and the goodwill through all the different revenue streams they have. So just to go into a bit more detail there, when you're talking earnings, yeah. we're talking profit that they have historically made and published. And there might be some adjustments to that profit. You mentioned potentially adding back things like depreciation that are more estimates and not a, an exact expense coming off that profit. Um, but that's all based on historic results, presumably. And so how far back would we go to look at these profits usually, Alex? Would it be the most recent year's profits or would we look back over, I don't know, previous years beyond that? Um, I, I think it would depend really on based on where the position of the club is. I think for something like football where it's so mature, uh, you would more likely go rather than looking at the past where everything has skyrocketed in revenues and profits since then, not, not as much profits, but revenues, you'd more likely to look at the most recent year and try and make if you can, some adjustments for the future and what you may see your earnings at going forwards. But more, most likely in our scenario, the most recent year is probably likely to be most realistic. The one thing they do say, though, is you must do it um, net of any player trading. So you can't have your earnings this year at 300 million if you've sold 200 million pounds worth of players. So just thinking about that, even the most recent year, and by all accounts, Man U are having quite a good year this year, although they won't have published their accounts. And so the revenue and the profit for this year have not been published yet. But if we were doing it based on last year, um, 
I suppose it depends on how well they've done in that season. I, I'm no expert here. Dave, what, what's your understanding of things like TV rights, whether they're in the Champions League or not? There must be some fluctuations and spikes there in, in revenue or income. Yeah, there are, there are three main revenue streams that most um, most football clubs have. So you, you have what they call match day revenue, which as you expect is revenue that you get on, on the day of the match. Uh, you have commercial revenue, which would be things like sponsorships and various other kind of affiliations. Um, and then you would have um, TV rights or, or, or broadcasting revenue, which is the third strand. Um, you're absolutely right in terms of broadcasting. Broadcasting is a massive, massive chunk of revenue for a Premier League team and for a team in the Champions League. As you kind of go down the football pyramid, that 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 broadcasting revenue dwindles away. And when we're in the Eastern Counties League, then I'm afraid that we're not going to get any form of broadcasting revenue. It's all going to be down to kind of like commercial partners that we might have, which would be front of shirt sponsors, things like that, um, and anyone that pays to go through the gates. And also the catering and things like that at those events. So, yeah, Man United, if they are in, um, if they're in the Champions League, um, yes, they will get prize money through playing in the Champions League. But the, the 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 big money spinner there is the TV rights and the broadcast rights that you get, and you get more of those as you progress further through the Champions League, because you're you're televised in more games, more people watch it around the world. Um, you also may see things like your commercial partners paying you more money if you are in um, if you're in various different competitions. Um, I know that some um, major sponsors of Premier League teams have got agreements where they will pay a certain amount of sponsorship. But if you do not qualify for a European tournament, the amount of sponsorship money that you receive actually reduces. So there is prize money, but it, prize money from the organisers is relatively small in compare, comparison to the broadcast revenue. Broadcast revenue is absolutely monstrously high. Brilliant. Thanks, Dave. So that's the, the profit, the revenue. The mm. other thing Alex mentioned in this method of valuation is then using a multiple, which mm. as far as I understand it, is as simple as picking a number and making it that many times the the, the revenue or the profits. How on earth would we come up with a, a multiple? Four times, five times, six times? Where are we plucking that number from, Dave? Well, if, if you're using profit, there there is quite a well-established method of, um, of, of, of profit multiple. Um, and that's something that I know you, you've come across before, the price earnings ratio. So price earnings ratio is the, the ratio of a, a company's price or value compared to its earnings. We normally do it on a per share basis, but you can do it in total. And you know what you would tend to look at, if you know the earnings of a business that you want to acquire, you could look at a price earnings ratio of a company that's similar to that and say, well, if this company has got a valuation that is 10 times its earnings, I can multiply earnings by 10 and that gives me an approximation of valuation. Now, as kind of we mentioned earlier, most football clubs have got negative earnings, which means that if you looked at price earnings ratios that are published, it will probably just have a big dash in any analyst column because they'll say, this is crazy, it's negative. You could look at a, an average listed company. So in the FTSE 100 in the UK, the average price earnings ratio is 13.9. So you could say, right, 13.9 multiplied by earnings, that would give you a valuation. And that's what you might do if you were looking at kind of a, you know, a, a pretty average business that's listed, that's got a multinational presence that's similar to other companies that you'd see in our FTSE 100s. Uh, unfortunately, 
you know, Man United is not an average company because it doesn't behave like a normal company because it makes losses every year and the losses just get bigger year after year after year. So we can't really see a road to profitability to value those profits. Um, so I, I struggle to see how you would use an earnings method in terms of a multiple. I think, as Alex said, you know, revenue is the only real method that you could use looking at a profit and loss loss figure there and how you'd come up with a revenue multiple it, it very much depends on what investors appetites are they do tend to go for uh, okay what other clubs of a similar position have gone have sold their business for recently so i know like um you've had southampton west ham in the last couple of years who have had like big investments from overseas and they've essentially done the rule of one and a half times the revenue and they've used that as their valuation estimates I think it's David Krinsky who's bought 80% of West Ham okay and a large degree and he's kind of used that and then kind of Southampton had whoever invested in Southampton used a similar philosophy for that but as kind of Dave has just been saying the brand of Manchester United is still way, 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 way bigger than those NAK clubs. And you'll be looking at about four, four and a half to five times the revenue as the multiplier if you're going to be doing that for one of those kind of big six clubs. I think it's going to be even bigger than that, to, to be yeah. honest, Alex, because I mean, you're looking at Man United with revenue of about half a billion, 600 mm. million um, pounds. And, and, you know, you're almost looking at a 10 times multiple of revenue which to me just seems absolutely nuts. You know, I, I've spoken to people that work in things like accountancy practices, and it's really normal for accountancy practices to be valued on a multiple of revenue. But I, I think you've really struggled to get more than two times revenue as a valuation for any accountancy practice, you know, let alone kind of 10 times. And if, if we just think of the, the logic of that, if they're buying it based on 10 times their revenue, that doesn't include any of the costs coming off that revenue. And so effectively, if I stumped up the cash today, I would have to wait at least 10 years to make that in revenue. And that's not even profit. That is just sales that I would get to kind of pay back on my investment. That is staggering. <laughs> wow. So we, we've talked about asset value and said that's on the low side. We've talked about multiples of profit, but profit is not big at a football club and therefore multiples of revenue which also look like they're coming up on the low side of value. Alex, where would you go next if you're advising a student in an exam question to look to value a business? Uh, not just because it's the best, but also because it will probably get you the most marks. Um, I'd probably be looking to do a discounted cash flow. So taking all the companies or businesses' future cash flows and bringing them back into today's terms to say what that, those future cash flows are worth to us today. You usually will kind of represent as well the maximum that you'd be willing to pay, okay, for that business, okay, as well, because you wouldn't pay more than what you're actually going to have, okay, as those future cash flows available to you. Perfect. So, so just visualizing what this would look like in a calculation, you would plot out next year, the year after, the year after that, and you could potentially go on forever working out how much the business expects to receive in as cash inflows, how much they're going to pay out and are committed to pay out. How do we bring that to one number for the value today, though, Alex? So what we'll do is, as we have all of those future cash flow um, estimates, 
um, we will use a cost of capital, essentially a kind of a required rate of return um, as a percentage discount figure to bring those future amounts back to today. Um, this will depend on, again, so many things regarding the company, regarding the riskiness of the investment, that how we, the investment will be financed will determine what these rates of um, return will be. But it will just be one percentage number, essentially. So th this is a really practical application, guys, listening. If, if you've done in your studies so far um, present value calculations and the discount factors you have at different percentages for different years in the future, to effectively take account of the time value of money. Money today is worth more than money that you would generate in the future. So what Alex is explaining is we'll take those future cash flows and we will discount them down to a lower present value today. Alex, what, what about money that goes on forever? Because I'm envisioning a spreadsheet that could go on for the next, well, 100 years beyond that. How would we deal with, how do we bring that to an end? Because we can't- well, what you, you what you would usually look at, and I think most kind of organisations, you won't really tend to look past much between five and eight years because it's so hard to estimate what your cash flows will be, kind of say after five or eight years typically. So what you will do after that is a either you'll assume the cash flows may stay the same, and okay, in perpetuity, I mean forever, or you may assume maybe like probably what we would with Manchester United, probably assume still further growth, even if at quite a low rate. The problem with it is it's by no means certain. You have no idea what the cash flows will be. You're still assuming the discount rate that you're using is that discount factor is going to be the same. But it will be such a huge, significant number that actually any tiny little variations in what you may think that cash flow to be forever, after five, six, seven, eight years' time, it will have an absolutely astronomical effect maybe on the value of that organisation. So how companies will come to that number is absolutely vital. Dave, may, maybe over to you now. So I'm thinking practically, the people that are putting in these bids to buy Manchester United, the football club, have they really got a spreadsheet going through the expected cash flows for the next five years? Where, where would they start even thinking about trying to estimate the money coming in and the money going out of the club? Well, I think this, we, we kind of try and apply some of our, Kind of scientific methods to these valuations and it's something that we we look at what what different methodologies could they use and you know one of them that i've heard recently is almost valuing a football club like a tech company and you know a lot of things with tech companies i know when they first valued things like facebook or instagram and things like that none of those businesses made profits but they had massive user bases and those user bases, it was felt they could turn into money in the future by selling advertising or whatever. And, and I have heard people say, well, Man United have got around a billion fans around, around the world. And if those billion fans, we could you know, get them to open their wallets, that generates a huge amount of revenue. And I've heard people talk about, well, if you've got a billion fans and Man United stream every single game on a pay-per-view basis and everyone's paying £15 to watch a game live, you know, through whatever portal that they use, whatever streaming service is, it doesn't take, you know, a huge percentage of those fans. And if 20% of them all pay £15 a game, suddenly your revenue is through the roof. And I've heard people talk about that as a possible method of 
kind of monetizing the fan base in order to increase revenue and increase profitability. But I don't think that's what people really care about. Uh, I, I, when I look at the people that are buying football clubs today, particularly Man United and, and, and things like that, I don't get the impression that those people are buying them because they are viable businesses with massive future profitability. Mm. I think they're buying them as a trophy asset. They're buying them because they want to say that they own Man United for whatever reason it is. I mean, we saw that with, with Roman Abramovich. He, he bought Chelsea because he wanted to own a football club in London and show off that he owned a football club that he could pump money into and they won the Champions League. And he managed to sell that in the future to someone else that wanted a trophy asset and was prepared to pay loads of money for it. But I don't see any of these owners buying football clubs as I would buy a business that is a good business, that's got good fundamentals, that's going to be profitable, that's going to generate positive cash flows, because I don't see the football clubs doing that. Uh, I see them there as being for other reasons. So there is lots of, you know, we can come up with lots of ideas about how it should be valued that would work if we were dealing with valuing British Telecom or Vodafone or Tesco. But I don't think they necessarily work in the world of a football club, which is a different type of entity altogether. Although I, I know that Alex has done far more research than he's, he's actually told me about a really interesting valuation method that appears to work. There is. It's one by, um, I was reading it by someone called Todd Markham, where it is kind of factor in essentially the revenues that you are likely to make, but then factoring in the potential for kind of that kind of fan base by dividing it by the kind of stadium capacity and the weight and the current wage bill of the club to kind of look back to that in and, and represent the size or the potential size of the organisation. Um, it does appear to work quite well based on what recent valuations have been. But again, I, I do agree with Dave that it's very much in the eye of the beholder is how much these clubs are worth. And I think probably the best illustration of that is probably in the most recent years, the only one I can think of where someone's bought a club as a business investment was Mike Ashley in Newcastle. Mm. And the reason why it took so long for them to sell was because he wanted to sell and get a good price for what he invested on his money. Mm. So like Chelsea and all and lots of other clubs will be bought and sold and can be bought and sold quite quickly and easily. Mm. But with Newcastle, because he wanted a certain price on that investment and, okay, and he was desperate for it, that's why the sale took so long and you had to wait to find the people who would be willing to meet that price. So as we were saying yesterday, Dave, when we were having a little chat about this, is you can view anything. If you were viewing Newcastle as a business, you could say this time last year, they were in a, near the relegation zone. They haven't won any trophies and haven't been that successful in recent years. But you could view it as a positive and say, look, they're a one club town with a huge fan base massive potential for growth in a huge stadium and it could therefore be a massive asset going forwards but it's just trying to marry up someone who's willing to sell at a certain price and, and trying to find someone willing enough who's not I think you, you'd also best. look at New, Newcastle prior to actually actually selling and say they're profitable you know that they're actually a football club that makes money and, you know, although I think Newcastle fans and football fans in general didn't like the way that Mike Ashley ran the club because he didn't invest in the playing side, didn't invest in the stadium, didn't do the things that the fans wanted him to do. 
but he was running a business that made a profit. He was running a business that was sustainable, that didn't require huge amounts of external finance. And there are very few clubs that, that, that are like that. The only ones that I know of are, are it was Newcastle until they were taken over, and now they're playing fantasy football. And 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 t- Tottenham are the only other ones. And you know, it, I, I, you'd have to say that those two clubs being run on that fiscally responsible basis between them, how many trophies have they won in the Premier League era? That's I don't two, think they've won any. Two they? Cars they cars. May have, have they won a League Cup? I'm not sure. Yeah, Tottenham in about 2008, I think, was about it. So, you know, it's, it's not exactly filling the trophy cabinet, <laughs> but from a financial perspective, as an accountant, I look at their accounts and say they are brilliant. And, you know, Tottenham have invested heavily in their stadium, and that stadium generates more on match day, I think, than any other stadium, definitely in the UK, probably anywhere in European football. Um, because it is set up to make money brilliantly. And I know, Ben, you and I have been to the Tottenham Stadium um, to watch American football. The speed at which they can pour a pint there is incredible. And they can serve so many drinks at half time. You know, it's the kind of stadium we want to stay behind afterwards. They've made an art of making money, but no one is sitting there and going, you know what, Spurs, I love, you know, I love their bars. They're brilliant. You know, people are just saying, Spurs, they haven't really invested in their midfield, have they? You know, they're not really looking that great. They haven't got the cutting edge that they need to take it to the next level. And it's always complaints rather than saying, oh, brilliant, they're financially responsible. So to bring it to a conclusion, as all good students should in any written answer, I think we've we've given a range of valuation techniques and suggested what that might show for the valuation of Man United. I think we've then got to put it in context that we've got sellers that um, potentially want to get the top price. We've got a range of potential buyers. There is a bit of competition. We've got the wider context of the economy. So the fact that interest rates are going up, which means a business with lots of debt is now less attractive because they've got to pay the interest on that debt. And if interest rates go up, that's going to be a higher cost. But it means that somebody buying it, if they've got excess cash, could clear the debt and actually make the business more profitable overnight. And then you've got the human factor. And I think, Dave, you made a really good point that when people are deciding how much they want to sell and on the flip side, people deciding how much they want to pay, a bit of pride comes into play. Somebody's not going to want to acknowledge selling it for less than they feel they could have got for it. But equally, there is the prestige of owning a football club. So they might want to pay more. Align that to something you want to buy. You found the house of your dreams. And it's valued at this, but you're so scared somebody else is going to buy it that you put in an offer well over the asking price to secure it. And that personal um, need to have the asset. The other thing that's being talked about is this is a really clear route into the UK and legitimizing it. So we won't go into the sources of finance and funds for buying football clubs. But there have been some allegations that people buying football clubs maybe haven't generated that cash from the, the nicest way within their, their own societies and that money's coming into the UK to legitimise it. So it could be a premium to buy something that is an acceptable asset to put your money into. Um, with all that in the mix, I don't think there is a right and a wrong answer. And I am really looking anticipation wise at what is going to be agreed in the coming weeks and months, whether they will sell, whether they won't sell, whether Alex, you say it will be a full sale, 
whether it'll actually be just a slice of it and they will still keep a controlling stake. I think this is going to develop over the next few weeks and months really, really interestingly. The, the crazy thing is that someone's going to pay $7 billion, $7 billion to buy Man United and then they're going to have to spend hundreds of millions, if not more billions, on bringing a stadium which is pretty dilapidated up to standard by bringing training facilities up to standard and if anyone's looking at whether Man United we think are actually going to be regularly competitive on a European level, they're going to have to invest several hundred million pounds, if not more, in the playing side of things in order to be competitive at the top tier of, of European football. So it's not just I'm paying $7 billion, I've got the club. It's $7 billion plus, 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 plus to ensure that, that, that they are at the top level that the fans want to see them at. I'd also say as well, they'll probably be what the Glazers got so much bad press for was um, leveraging the club and using so much debt to finance the day-to-day -day operations. And I think the new owner will be pressured, whoever it is, to actually start to clear some of that debt as well. So the cost is going to be absolutely astronomical, almost regardless of whatever actually ever the final price is. Brilliant. Guys, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's really good to contextualise something that we teach, we see in the exams, but do it with a, a real life example. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us. No, pleasure. Um, Dave, would you like to do the, the final wrap up for this evening's episode? Yeah, thank you very much, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure discussing football and finance, uh, which is one of the things that I, I spend a lot of time reading, listening, talking to people about. So it's really great to have this discussion. Thanks to everyone that's taken the time to, to download and to listen to this podcast. Um, it, it always humbles us when we see the numbers of people that are downloading and listening. So whatever you're doing right now, thank you very, very much. And if you, um, if you do get a chance and you've enjoyed what we've said today, could you please like, share uh, and pass it on to anyone else that you think may be interested. But until next week, good luck with your studies and we'll see you again on the First Intuition Podcast. 